Peter. Uh, uh, Peter, what? Oh, yeah, Pe Peter Falk. I was, I was good. I almost said Peter Cassavetes, and I was like, what? And I was like, wait, where did I get Peter? But it's Peter Falk. Okay. John Cassavetes <laughs> and Peter Falk cut all of that. Okay. Um, Do you want a fresh take of a... John Cassavetes and Peter <laughs> Falk, which doesn't sound so? Sunday Presents with me, Kira Maloney. And me, Dean Buckley. This is a very special episode, but not that special because there's four of them. <laughs> the second installment of Love at Worst Sight, a miniseries in which Dean and I, in addition to our usual gimmick of making each other watch favorite films of ours the other hasn't seen, this time the films are considered the worst. Yes. But we like them anyway, or at least one of us does. Are you saying boo or boo-urns? I was saying boo-urns. A time of recording and a time of release, listeners will be aware that you didn't like that. <laughs> I did not. I did not care for it, no. No, this episode, you had me watch Elaine May's most recent film. <laughs> That's the, true. The 1987 musical comedy Ishtar. One of the most notorious flops of all time. There's a famous Fireside comic of a video store in hell, and it's just copies of Ishtar. Yeah. And Mr. Fireside, whose name I don't recall. His surname is Larson, I'm sure of that. He he actually subsequently apologized because later he actually watched Ishtar and he was like, pretty good. <laughs> One of the most famous, like, bot of jokes, like, late night hack. Mm -hmm. Even more than the happening, like we discussed this last time, yeah. but like Ishtar is is like you just say the word and you get a <laughs> can studio audience well, laughter. Dean Brandom in this book says uh, the the book is refocus the films of Leme. He describes Ishtar as a film modi, which I'm never going to say again. I'm going to just say the English translation, which is cursed film. Bonjour, you cheese-eating surrender monkeys! He says, Greed, the Von Stroheim film, Cleopatra, Heaven's Gate, Waterworld. And he says, In each instance, these films were plagued by production problems, experienced budgetary and schedule overruns, suffered bad press during production, and opened to hostile critical receptions and below-average box office. No matter the inherent quality of each film, any such assessment was preceded by an overawing negative reputation. Such is the fate of the cursed film, perpetually damned without either evidence or true testimony. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to put it. I think we probably mentioned on the Brazil episode that for some reason, during the 80s especially, yeah. I think post Heaven's Gate is, is, is why, <laughs> critics would fuck you up if you went over budget on a film. Oh my god, it was, it was, cr it was a crazy time. <laughs> Imagine like, being on the side of the studio accountant <laughs> and being a film critic. This this film went over budget, and therefore I hate it. Yeah. That was that was a big school of film criticism for mm -hmm. quite a while. Yeah, it it started before Heaven's Gate with like like New York, New York, and stuff, mm. but it really kicked into high gear with Heaven's Gate, and then continued for like a decade for no reason. Because people blamed Heaven's Gate for UA collapsing. Even though, as I will always say on this topic, if UA could be brought down by one film, it wasn't being run very well. People, people, let's not blame each other. We all know this is Millhouse's fault. Huh? Yeah, you and your stupid fucking cowboy movie. So Elaine May, love of my life, etc. <laughs> she was one half of Nichols and May, the comedy duo with Mike Nichols. The best improv comedians of all time and maybe the only good improv comedians of all time <laughs> my throat Arthur, i was i sat I, by that phone uh, all day friday uh, honey i was working and I just, all day I, friday night darling i was in the lab and all and I, day saturday mom, I, I, and I, all I, day sunday mom and I, your father finally said to me phyllis eat something you'll faint <laughs> 
I said, no, Harry, no. I don't want my mouth to be full when my son calls it. And when they went their separate ways, not acrimoniously, as far as I'm aware, due to them continuing to work together in other capacities. <laughs> yes. But when, when Nichols and May ceased to uh, be a duo, Mike Nichols went off and became a film director. He made The Graduate at also like a million other films that you have seen many of. Mm. Um, both both actually Dean and also anyone listening to this podcast. And Elaine had a bit more of a cir- circuitous route around. <laughs> yeah. She did a lot of different stuff. She she, you know, she was an actress and and a screenwriter and and a film director. And as a film director, her first film, A New Leaf, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And which I believe you have seen. I've seen that film 20 plus times. In fact, the only difference between us is that I am a man and you are a woman. And we don't have to let that interfere if we are reasonably careful. It stars herself and Walter Matthau. And it was substantially cut down by the studio. Like there's a, fam- a famous story about her like keeping rolls of film like under her bed <laughs> to try and protect them yeah. from being destroyed. But the final film, you know, it was well received and so forth. She made two more films in in the in the the seventies, as I mm. believe they're called, which were uh, the Heartbreak Kid, which is wonderful. That's Charles Grodin, isn't it? Or Grodin? I don't know how to pronounce his name. That is an insane way to pronounce Charles Grodin's name, and you have to keep that in the cup. <laughs> It's Charles Grodin. Okay. okay. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful film. Wonderful film. And Mikey and Nikki with John Cassavetes and Peter Falk, which is great. It's like, it's fantastic. It's like insane that someone could make that and not be the biggest director of the 70s. Mm. But anyway, whatever. She did have a vagina at the time. <laughs> um, brackets. <laughs> I'm not a transphobe. I, I was trying to say she she was a woman in a humorous fashion, and I apologize to everyone who was offended. I'm, I'm sorry, that came out wrong. Let, let, let me try again. Nice ass. She had, like, a reputation as being difficult or whatever. Yeah. And mostly in the 80s was being a screenwriter for other people and being, like, a, a script doctor and stuff. Mm. And she had written Heaven Can Wait, starring and, and co-directed by Warren Beatty, which was a big hit. Yeah. And she also did a apparently very extensive uncredited rewrite on Reds, his film about American communists, which he won Best Director for that. So mm. so he owed her, he owed her. Yes. Right. And somebody else who owed her was Dustin Hoffman. Because she had done a major uncredited rewrite on Tootsie, ah. which had been a big hit for him. So it's the mid 80s. And Warren is like, I'm going to give Elaine May the chance like to have total creative control that she's never really had. Mm. And the guy who was head of production at Columbia at the time was like an old friend of his. Yeah. And he was like, man, I don't know, but okay. <laughs> and Warren Beatty promised that it would be ready for Christmas 1986 for less than $25 million. <laughs> Let's just say that's not what happened. And you can tell us what happens in the movie. Three, two, three, four, four, two, three, and... These men are pawns. I put a price of 20,000 dirham on their heads. Next, they will be hailed as the two messenger of God. They were just a couple of songwriters who came to Ishtar to break into show business. Ishtar opens on a black screen, and we hear the voices of two men struggling to write a song. Telling the truth can be bad news. Telling the truth can be bad news. Telling the truth can be... Tell, 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 telling the truth can be good news. Telling the truth is a bad idea. Telling the truth is a difficult problem. Telling the truth, telling the truth is a is a scary. Telling the truth is a scary predicament. Telling the truth is a bitter herb. 
Telling the truth is a dangerous tunnel. When you get out of that tunnel, it's you've a, got it's better a black herbs. life ahead. Forget herb. I never heard of a hit that had the word herb in it. They are Chuck Clark, played by Dustin Hoffman, and Lyle Rogers, played by Warren Beatty, a pair of songwriters who dream of becoming the next Simon and Garfunkel, despite being 20 years too late to be Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> they get on the phone to Marty Freed, who is a similarly down on his luck agent, though they don't they don't realize that. They invite him to an open mic where they're performing some of their original songs to rapturous silence from an incredibly <laughs> an incredibly not into it crowd. Marty looks horrified, but somehow, nonetheless, he signs them and offers them one of two jobs. They can go to Honduras for $75 a week, or they can go to Marrakesh in Morocco for $95 a week as hotel singers. What advice does he give them? Let me tell you what I told Tony Bennett. Sing songs people already know. That way, if they don't like it, they'll still have something to applaud. <laughs> of course, of course, of course. Chuck wants to take some time on his own to contemplate this offer, so he goes to a bar, and Lyle follows him because he just... Lyle just follows Chuck. Like, that's mm -hmm, why. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we get a flashback. I just want to say, what I, one of the things I love about this flashback is it, it has the longest fade-in ever of the <laughs> camera just going slowly out of focus on Warren Beatty. And when it fades out, it's on Chuck. And I just, I love that. But in the flashback, we see how they came to be the duo of Rogers and Clark. We see that Lyle was an ice cream man and Chuck was a piano man in a Greek restaurant. Lyle was married to Willa, played by Tess Harper. You know where else we've seen her, right? No. That's Jesse's mom on Breaking Bad. Oh, right. That's nice. And Chuck was dating Carol, played by the inimitable Carol Kane, a woman who makes me so happy to see each of them dreams of being a songwriter and a popular musical success, but they don't have any talent. And they meet when Lyle is out for dinner with Willa at the Greek restaurant. And Chuck has promised this old couple who always celebrate their anniversary there that he'd write them a song. And he plays them this. I promised I'd love you forever. A promise I'm planning to keep. You'll be well taken care of after I've gone off to the land of the big sleep. <laughs> Obviously, nobody else in the restaurant likes the song, but Lyle thinks it's just dandy and he sends Chuck a drink. Uh, the waiter's like, it's from the gentleman over there. He's also a songwriter. They, they become friends. They form a duo and start working on songs together. This almost immediately ends Lyle's marriage. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. Willow was clearly hoping he'd give up on the songwriting thing at some point. They moved there. They moved to New York so he could make it in, in showbiz. And uh, they shouldn't have. Meanwhile, uh, Chuck, who, who says that his nickname is The Hawk. Um, but as far as I can tell, he is only called that by people who he's told his nickname is The Hawk. Yes. Uh, he plays himself up as this playboy with all this background in the music industry. And then he gets dumped by Carol for not committing at all, ever. What are you doing? I'm leaving you. What are you, what are you talking about? I don't want to see you again, ever. Carol. What do you care? If you never see me again, it'll only be one time less a week than you see me now. He rings up Lyle, he's suicidal, he's on the ledge. He confesses to, to Lyle that he's a fraud who, who's never had, he's not the, this big man that he's been making himself out to be. And Lyle says he's going to come over and Chuck makes him promise not to call the cops. So naturally, before Lyle gets there, the cops rock up and <laughs> Chuck was sitting on his windowsill before the cops. And, and when the cops come to his apartment, he gets out on the ledge and like walks <laughs> like a whole apartment down. His elderly parents are there. Charles, it's Rabbi Pierce, Charles. Oh my God, Rabbi Pierce is here. Charles? But only Lyle is able to talk him down with one of the most amazing pep talks in film history. Hey, it takes a lot of nerve to have nothing at your age. Don't you understand that? Yeah, most guys would be ashamed, but you've got the guts to just say the hell with it. You say that you'd rather have nothing than settle for less. Understand? I've never thought of it that way. Yes. Poor liar. We get out of the flashback and Chuck decides they're taking the booking. Meanwhile, in the fictional country of Ishtar, neighboring Morocco, we see an archaeological dig going on. 
and these two men find this map that will apparently cause a holy war in the Middle East if it gets out. And the younger of the two men runs away with the map and, and he goes back to his apartment and he rings somebody and tells that person that only they will be able to find the map that he's hidden it. And somebody shows up to murder him and does and doesn't find the map. When Chuck and Lyle arrive in Ishtar for their connecting flight to Marrakesh, Chuck is approached by a mysterious woman dressed poorly as a man. Bizarrely recurring theme on this show now. Um, played by Isabella Gianni. And we learn later that she is Shira Assel, one of the leaders of the resistance to the local emir of Ishtar. And she tells Chuck her life is in danger and convinces him to swap passports, jackets, and bags so that she can get out of Ishtar and get to Morocco. And Chuck does because a pretty lady is asking him to do something. Um, well, initially he does think that she's a boy. And it's like, I, I have no problem with your lifestyle, but I'm straight. Yes. Um, and then, uh, but and then she she shows her her boob, and and he's like, oh. He Chuck thought he'd be able to get a, a passport from the embassy after giving his to her, but the the embassy is getting like shut down because Ishtar is about to explode into political violence. So Lyle goes ahead to Marrakesh without Chuck to try and save the booking, while Chuck figures out his own way there. While he's still in Ishtar, Chuck is approached by a CIA agent named Jim Harrison, who circuitously recruits him to be, to be an asset for the CIA for $150 a week, which is pretty much the only thing Chuck cares about. Chuck arrives at the hotel in Marrakesh just in time to put on a great show with Lyle. They follow Marty's advice and only do songs people have heard of and get, get a big response, including a brief appearance by by f future beloved character actor fred melamed as some like like north african aristocrat who's like invites them to work at his worthless palace <laughs> whatever that means is he the guy who asked that they play yellow rose of texas yes yes okay <laughs> yeah afterwards chuck sneaks off to meet with harrison while all goes back to the bedroom unfortunately that's when shira chooses to sneak into into his and Chuck's room because she's trying to steal back the luggage because she doesn't want to get it back off Chuck anymore because she knows he's working for the CIA. She's stopped by Lyle, who, in a scene very reminiscent of Seven Samurai, believes she is a boy and wrestles her to the ground and only realizes she's a woman when he grabs her breast, which he holds onto <laughs> until, until she... Yeah. Slaps him off. Uh, she tells him about her deal with Chuck and the fact that Chuck is now working for the CIA and says if he if he's sympathetic to her and wants to help, uh, that to, to meet her at the market in Marrakesh, to find her brother Muhammad and ask him to buy a blind camel. Um, I just, I just want to say for everyone at home, Muhammad, pretty common name. The most common name in the world, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, at his meeting with Harrison, Chuck is told Lyle is working with the communists, which he doesn't believe. And he tries to back out of his arrangement, but he, he likes money and he doesn't 100% back out. The next day, they go to the market, followed by just tons of spies. Like the whole street they're walking down, everyone else on the street is just spies following them. Some of the spies are Ishtari assassins sent by the emir because the map speaks of a prophecy about two holy messengers who will incite a revolution in Ishtar, and he wants them dead because he thinks they might be them, uh, or that they will be perceived as them anyway. With the help of a friendly young man at the market called Abdul, Chuck and Lyle are able to escape. Chuck goes back to the hotel. Lyle circles around and just goes back to the market because he still needs to, to buy that blind camel. Shira confronts Chuck back at the hotel, and he she, she thinks he's given the map to the CIA because she, that's who... It was her brother who was killed for the map, and she was the one he called. And she just grabbed all his things and assumed it, the map was going to be among them. But then when she like searches the bags, it's not there. And she thinks Chuck has given the map to the CIA, but he hasn't because he has no idea what the fuck <laughs> she's talking about. He's just trying to hit on her the whole time. <laughs> Chuck has unwittingly become a double agent. Lyle is just a communist at this point. <laughs> Afterwards, Chuck and Lyle are both separately contacted about going into the desert for a further mission, even though they're actually being sent into the desert to die. Chuck by the CIA because they promised the Emir that they'd kill Chuck and Lyle 
in case they're the messengers and they need to make it look like an like they did weren't murdered because they're American citizens. I think Shira's rebels want them dead because they know that the rebels don't have the map and having the map. The idea that they have the map is the only thing keeping the rebels from being snuffed out. And so they're both sent out into the desert, suspicious of each other. No matter how far they walk, they just can't comprehend the possibility they've been sent out here to die. <laughs> it just does not compute. They must have fucked up finding the oasis. The oasis. <laughs> and, you know, they run out of water. They uh, get lost. The beads lost. aren't glowing. Shira gave gave Lyle beads that are supposed to glow in the dark, but it's just obvious horse, horse shit. And eventually out there in the desert with their blind camel, they confess everything to each other vis-a-vis the CIA and Shira and so on. So there's this whole scene where they try to get some water from people trying to buy guns at a black market auction because they're on the way to Ishtar to help suppress the revolution. And Lyle goes down because he's got like enough uh, he's got a kefir and stuff. He's able to cover up the fact that he's a really tall white man. And he's trying to get water, uh, but none of the people he's trying to get water off speak English. In fact, they don't even speak Arabic. They're all different tribes of Berbers who speak different dialects that are mutually not intelligible with each other. And Chuck gets seen by the people who've organized the auction. And they just, for some reason, naturally assume he's the auctioneer. And he has to like pretend to be able to speak English and all the Berber dialects, but not Arabic. Just, <laughs> and and there's this whole there's this whole bit, and eventually the gunrunners run off because a CIA helicopter there to kill Lyle and Chuck shows up, but the gunrunners run away. And first the the helicopter flies off, and Chuck and Lyle are like, "God damn it! They sh- I, they should have seen us. They could have rescued us." Chuck and Lyle, for some reason, decide to keep all the ordnance that was left behind at the market after everyone else has fled, <laughs> and they they continue struggling on through the desert. And at one point, Chuck has pulled the jacket he's still wearing that he t- borrowed from Shira over his head, and Lyle notices the map is stitched into the lining of the jacket and has been this entire time. And it's at that moment. But the CIA come back and Chuck and Lyle still think that the CIA helicopter is probably trying to rescue them. The CIA helicopter is actually trying to kill them. The agent has to keep telling the pilot to fly lower because people are going to check the angle of the gunshot. (laughs) It would be really obvious what happened if they were shot from directly above, for example. (laughs) But Chuck and Lyle have all this ordinance, so they just start firing back and the CIA guys are like, what the fuck? (laughs) <laughs> and, and then Shira and Abdul roll up in a, in a truck. Shira has regrets her, her participation in setting them to their deaths. And the four of them successfully repel the CIA with machine guns, a grenade launcher, and a bazooka. <laughs> um, in the yeah. end... Yes. In the end, Chuck and Lyle ransom the map back to the CIA in exchange for two things. First of all putting through all of Shira's social reforms in Ishtar. It's a disaster. The girl wants social reforms in Ishtar, which means we probably have to get rid of the Amir, but that's not the biggest problem. The worst of it is their second request, which is for the CIA to produce and promote a live Rogers and Clark album recorded at the hotel in Marrakesh. Hello, Ishtar, you're more than a country. You're a state of mind. Hello, Morocco, you're They wrote the music and the lyrics. Fun I've had so far. Here in Morocco, I found the spirit of it. And to achieve this, they have to fill the room with soldiers who will applaud on command because it's the only way to get applause <laughs> on a live album by Rodgers and Clark. And they're performing their songs. <laughs> That's the single. I feel so small when I look at the stars. How big is Venus? How big is Mars? 
I feel so small when I look at the sky. How big is heaven? How big am I? Applaud! And Shira is in the audience and everyone else is having the worst time of their fucking lives. But somebody turns to Shira and notices she's crying. And when they ask why, she says, I think they're wonderful. The film ends on a shot of this poster board in New York where we'd previously seen Simon and Garfunkel albums and Bruce Springsteen albums and stuff where Chuck and Lyle were talking about who they wanted to be. And we see their album on the board at a very steep discount. End of film. <laughs> <laughs> Telling the truth can be dangerous business. Honest and popular don't go hand in hand. If you admit that you can play the accordion, no one will hire you in a rock and roll band. I'm going to tell you what Roger Ebert said about Ishtar. Cool. Okay. <clears throat> Ishtar is a truly dreadful film, a lifeless, massive, lumbering exercise in failed comedy. Elaine May, the director, has mounted a multi-million dollar expedition in search of a plot so thin that it could hardly support a five-minute TV sketch. And Beatty and Hoffman, good soldiers marching along on the trip, look as if they've had all wit and thought beaten out of them. The movie is a long, dry slog. It's not funny, it's not smart, and it's interesting only in the way a traffic accident is interesting. Jesus Christ, Roger. Like, I know she went over budget, but did you have to kill her? <laughs> Stop! Stop! He's already dead! I mean, I feel like you've probably picked up on how I feel about it, but to sum up, I think they're wonderful. I love this film. It was so funny. Roger Ebert doesn't know what he was talking... I'm not going to say he doesn't know what he's talking about, but he didn't know what he was talking about in 1987 when he wrote that review of Ishtar. Because Ishtar is fantastic. It's so funny. It's... I... Watching it before, I thought it was, like, extremely funny. Watching it this time, I think it might be the funniest film I've ever made. (laughs) Like, I'm willing to say that. It's insane to me that anybody could call it not funny. It's weird that he's complaining about Hoffman and Beatty seeming like they've had all their intelligence beaten out of them or whatever he said, because the, they're <laughs> dumb. Chuck and Lyle yeah. are, are super dumb. They're like the dumbest <laughs> men on earth. I completely understand why last time I asked if it, it was this basically a road to film set in the like post oil crisis North Africa or whatever. And you were like, yes, but it's also dumb and dumber. It is so dumb and dumber that I have to assume the Farley brothers fucking love this film and we're like, (laughs) let's do that. (laughs) But, but it's from Providence to Colorado (laughs) instead of New York to Morocco. No, like it blows my mind that this is on the, uh, this is film is considered bad, let alone one of the worst films of all time. (laughs) I don't, I, I understand that it went over budget. I understand it was directed by a woman, but even so, (laughs) I struggle to understand how a film this good could end up in this position. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people, I've seen people talk about that bad music more or less can't be funny. Wrong. Like, that music can't be so bad it's good. Wrong. (laughs) Well, I feel like anyone who thinks that Ishtar is, like, definitive proof otherwise. So the... The songs were written by Elaine May and Paul Williams. I, are you familiar with Paul Williams? That name rings a bell. Well, he's written like 
like a million things. He plays one of the main characters in in Phantom of the Paradise, the Brian mm. Papa movie. He wrote like Rainbow Connection. Like he's 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 wrote like loads of fucking shit. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? And what's on the other side? And he's a genius or whatever. And he said that like writing the songs for Ishtar with Elaine May was the most fun he's ever had. That they were just like pissing themselves. And also that he he kind of got so almost like method that he was like, these guys really have something, you know? <laughs> They're so close. <laughs> a method just, composer every, is I, a new <laughs> new avenue. We you know what I mean though. Yeah, no, I do. And just all the songs like even songs that are just there for like a second are so funny to me. Yeah. So Dangerous Business obviously is is their big is their big hit. It's as good as Bridge Over Troubled Water any day of the week. <laughs> I'm leaving you love in my will. <laughs> I'm leaving some love in my will. Yes, I'm leaving some love in my will. My life is nearly over and time goes by so fast and I wanted to give you a present to thank you for the past. I don't know what the proper name for that song is, but that's that scene of him just like perfor- passionately performing that song while the whole restaurant just goes quiet in silent horror. <laughs> so good software i gotta have software <laughs> i gotta have software for my machine <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 but there's so but like even with just dangerous business the scene where the writing is so funny but like there's so many tiny details like the lyric if you admit that you can play the accordion no one will hire you in a rock and roll band mm-hmm the choice of the word higher, mm-hmm. the choice of the word in, yeah, fast Oh, one of the the great gags throughout the film is them just trying, is them com- not to, actually trying to cram as many syllables into lines as they can, but un- completely unnecessarily cramming lines with syllables. <laughs> yeah, they're yeah. <laughs> they have no idea how to edit. It is what is the thing that's like more than even <laughs> the bad ideas. There is no editing. <laughs> they just keep trying until they they've got a line, a lyrical line that fits a melodic line, and then if they fit, they're done. Next line, why? <laughs> <laughs> I can see her standing in the backyard of my mind. She cracks her knuckles, and the scab that's on her knee won't go away. I can see the woman waiting in her eyes, and I can see the love, but I can't see the blue from Dodgers in her way. I'm not sure I've seen another Warren Beatty film. That's insane. Which I am very aware that he's playing against type here. I was going to say that. Like, it's like, <laughs> Warren, okay, are you familiar with how many women Warren Beatty has had sex with? I'm familiar with the claims. <laughs> I, I unreservedly believe the claims. Okay. Anyway, somebody d- said that Warren always had girlfriends who resembled his sister, which is hilarious. Mm-hmm. And also, Cher said, Warren has probably been with everybody I know. <laughs> and in this movie, he's like the insecure dweeb next to sexy heartthrob Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like, when he says, The way you walk, you can only do that with a small body. <laughs> yes, Incredible. yes. Yes. For me, like, because I'm pretty sure this is my first Warren Beatty film, he will always be a big lanky weirdo to me. And I will be <laughs> amazed that he is ever, that he plays suave and <laughs> and attractive good, in other films. <laughs> okay, I just looked at the budget to box office return on this, and even yeah. assuming it had a had a chunky like marketing budget, this isn't that yeah. big a flop. Like, 
compared to some things. Yeah, it's 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 notoriousness is is somewhat strange. Okay, in terms of why Ishtar is such a notorious flop, there's like a million like reasons that none of them are like proper reasons, you know? Yeah. Here's the thing: is it's 1987 when this film comes out. Yes. And Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman, they're not elderly, mm. but it's not the 70s, you yes. know? Brandom says, in 1987, as a high school student, I asked a classmate on a date to see Ishtar. When told it starred Warren Beatty, she replied, who's Warren Beatty? To the average teenage filmgoer in 1987, Warren Beatty was an unknown quantity. A 50-year-old actor who had not been on screen since 1981, and even then in a long and verbose drama about disillusioned American communists from the beginning of the century. So even though Warren Beatty is like obviously a huge movie star in the history of film, in the 80s, like the 80s is such a transitionary decade in yeah. cinema. And one of the big transitions is away from courting the baby boomer demographic. Yes. Who were happy to sit at home. And films were much, much, much more aimed at Gen X. Yeah, this is when they, they started really hammering the, 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 you know, the quadrants and the demographics and the stuff. Aiming yes, things exactly, at exactly. the 18 to 25s and all that corporate shit. Our network is targeting a hip new demographic. People who don't like you. And the other thing is, well, there's a couple of things. Okay, so <laughs> the head of production at Columbia who had greenlit it, he left shortly after Coca-Cola bought Columbia. Mm -hmm. And so a new guy was put in who for a bunch of like old timey grudge reasons, <laughs> Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman fucking hated mm. and did not want to interact with whatsoever. <laughs> yes. And another major thing is okay, so it, imagine Ishar had come out on time, which would have been Christmas 1986. Highest grossing yeah. films in the Christmas of 86 release were Star Trek for The Voyage Home. And the Eddie Murphy film, The Golden Child, right? The I've never heard of that second That's, one. Yeah, it wasn't like... It wasn't a competitive Christmas. Yeah, it wasn't a super competitive Christmas, right? But due to the delays, Ishtar was instead released in the middle of summer, which had been very, very codified at that point as the blockbuster season. Yeah. And was like very over ten cutthroat. years after Jaws. Yeah. So and Ishtar is a silly comedy about two old guys wandering around the Middle East. Yeah. When you started <laughs> saying it was released in, I was waiting for January because that's That's a dead zone. Hey Mike, the holidays are over. And this month, we get a new Underworld movie and a new Resident Evil movie. So you know what that means. Fuck you, it's January! Yeah, where you burn off all the stuff you don't think can do well anywhere else. But putting it in summer? It set like... itself up to fail. Well, the thing is, the guy who took over as head of production, whose name was David Putnam, he had no interest in Ishtar. And was like, this is it a holdover from from the old regime, and I and I scorn it. Yeah, and like it is essentially set up to fail in that sense. And then the other thing, like I was saying about the all these stories were coming out all the time about what a dreadful production it was, mm. a la Heaven's Gate, you know, nearly a decade before, and Waterworld a decade later. And mm. there are films that recover from that, like Apocalypse Now or Titanic, but they're Apocalypse Now and Titanic. <laughs> yeah. So they've kind of, they've, they're harder to bury in the, this went over budget and so fuck this. Uh, and also there's something in, in, in those, in, at least you're doing an epic. Yeah. Almost yeah. like, at least you're doing an epic. So <laughs> of course it was going to get complicated and, and things were going to go wrong. But at least you're doing like a, a three-hour film about yeah. like what it means to be a human or something. You're not and doing... Now doing an, a silly 90-minute comedy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the, 
they were filming on location in the Middle East. And then Iran-Contra happened, so it was like... Yeah. Which wasn't related to the production issues, obviously, but, you know, it it made the political stuff a little too political, you know what I mean? Yeah, like the, the political stuff is, is in there in large part for humor. Like it, you know, One of my favorite CIA... scenes in the whole movie is when Chuck and Lyle have like a political debate where they're both just parroting things they've heard and don't understand. Did you know that in Russia, communists can't go into business? Did you know that in Ishtar, the dome of the Emir's palace is gold? And the people have never seen a refrigerator? You know that Gaddafi has signed a pact with Morocco. I can't believe these men may control the fate of the Middle East. Like, it's... like literally just exact lines <laughs> yeah, 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 said yeah, to them yeah, by yeah. Harrison and Shira. Yeah. Yeah. The 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 comedy and it feels this way now watching it all these years later. The comedy is very pitched as like a kind of broad Cold War satire. It's not meant to be about anything in particular. It's meant to be about the kind of things that have been going on yeah. since the end of World War Two. <laughs> but yeah, if you if you if you come out around the time of Iran Contra, you're gonna get nailed to Iran Contra one way. And <laughs> also, like a week before it came out, uh, Gary Hart had to drop out. Warren Beatty had been all in on Gary Hart, so that yeah. that wasn't good in terms of publicity. Also. I hear all that, and I understand intellectually how all these different factors could come together, and I still think it's a lot of bullshit, because <laughs> it's one thing to flop on release, yeah. but yeah. the Ishtar turnaround has taken so long, and it's, it's still rev revving up. Like it's Yeah, I mean, the, the reviews I don't understand. No. Like, I can understand... You, you haven't seen Heaven's Gate, but I can understand the negative reviews of Heaven's Gate, uh, not least because it got totally butchered in, in editing. And so the theatrical version yeah. wasn't the version that Chimino wanted. And also it's very long. And there's a certain certain type of film that like that if it's that length, you either go with it or you don't. And if you don't go with it, you're fucked. Yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. But the reviews of Ishtar are so vicious and I yeah. don't get it. <laughs> This was a great show, Krusty. You deserve an Emmy for this. Forget it. The Academy hates me. I don't know why. Bunch of old know-nothing dinosaurs wouldn't know entertainment if it bit him in the... Hey, hey! <laughs> I, I didn't look too much into the background of the film because I wanted to, to hear you tell it. But I did see something that, like, Warren Beatty, like, kept the press away from filming and that maybe part of the backlash was punishment for not letting them report on the set and stuff that might be true yeah warmby he was or certainly in the initial phases he was very protective of elaine may because the whole idea was giving her you know the chance she never had but that but the other issue was which th this became more of an issue in post-production as producer he had final cut and elaine may also had final cut and I believe Dustin Hoffman, despite not being a producer, but wanting to be equal to his co-star, also had final cut. Hmm. I don't think three <laughs> things can be final. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Who actually made this film in post? Like, um, like... Okay, well, for what it's worth, the director's cut, which is probably the version you watched, was released in 2013, and that's two minutes shorter okay so it's not a huge difference okay it's not like hours were cut out of it or something <laughs> no not like on a new leaf yeah i think she's about the most isolated woman i've ever met rich single isolated she's about to drop that teacup So this the the version that came out is not necessarily too dissimilar to what Elaine May was tilting at. Yeah, she had this reputation as a as a difficult director that only was further cemented. Apparently, she uh, wanted fifty takes of vultures landing next to Beatty and Hoffman, and those are <laughs> fucking rookie numbers, and no one should <laughs> at all be in trouble for that. Sorry. No. 
David Fincher did 99 takes of the opening scene of The Social Network, and he's still allowed to make movies. Do another take and get it right 127 times. The casting of, of Beatty and, and Hoffman is so genius mm. in terms of, like, it would be so easy. Like, and obviously that was part of the impetus of how the film got made, but it would be so easy to make a film like this with, like, I don't know, like Dan Aykroyd and... Mm. Aykroyd and Murray, just go ahead and do yeah. it. Like, yeah, could... yeah, basically, yeah. But Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman, it's very unintuitive, but it it's perfect, you know? And I can't imagine it in any other way. Yeah, there is something, and it's hard, I can't quite capture it either, like what it is, but having two of the biggest stars of the 70s, like yeah. two world-conquering film actors who, like, casting these two guys when they are in some ways at the height of their powers, but in other ways experiencing a downturn in their in their star power, certainly, as these, like, calling them over-the-hill musicians would imply that they have been musicians for long enough to be over-the-hill. They're actually just two middle-aged guys who just, like, decided to be musicians. And and it's the, the, the sincerity with which they act the characters is <laughs> what makes so much of the humor work, that, like... Yeah. It, not just there's, these there's nothing arch or ironic in them. Yeah, like not just these two actors, but I don't like I don't I, I don't think the film would be as funny with two comic actors. Certainly not two comic actors of yeah. the 80s. Their just like sincere commitment to the characters, just like playing the characters straight even though the characters are ridiculous is <laughs> I think something gone wrong here. He's just the fucking blind camel. <laughs> What are you doing with the camera? Oh, that's a long story. It's another th one of the things I bought. Uh, what do you mean? Huh? Well, uh, you bought a camera? Well, yeah. Well, no, I didn't actually buy them. They sold them to me. But huh? uh, yeah. come on, boy. Easy, boy. Easy, boy. Easy, boy. Easy, boy. Easy, boy. Easy, boy. What the hell's the matter with him? Is he Sorry. blind? Well, yeah, he is. But but he's in perfect condition. They use him for drawing well water up a track. Why? Are you crazy? Look, I'm not supposed to have him permanently. I don't think. The, the amount of time they're carting around the blind cowboy for is incredible. Like, stuff will be going on and you almost forget about it and then it'll be there and you'll be like, oh my god. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'll, like there's when they're leaving the market with the camel, when they reunite and, and, and Lyle is, is informing Chuck about the camel, like, the whole time this is going on, whether the ca camel is the focus or not, the camel is up to shit. The camel is pulling off to one side. The camel <laughs> is ramming through people and just causing chaos. And it's just... Oh, it's, it's really when, good. when they're wandering in the desert and the camel is like zigzagging all over the place <laughs> and, the, and the CIA are like tracking them and they're like, yeah. they're just fucking going in circles. What's happening? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's incredible how late in the film the CIA still don't understand how dumb Chuck and Lyle are. <laughs> like they know they're dumb, but they just they just can't comprehend these levels of dumb. Who's dumber? Obviously, Chuck thinks he's smarter. Of course. And Lyle thinks Chuck is smarter. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Lyle, Lyle thinks Chuck is God's gift. I think Chuck is dumber, but he has more natural guile. And he's he's <laughs> just about able to coast through life on that level of like guile and cunning. But inside, between the ears, nothing. Nothing. Like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lyle is totally guileless. Yeah. Lyle like is a hayseed. He's, like, he's, he's, he's one of life's innocents. Yeah. <laughs> one of life's good guys, you might say. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you do like me. I don't. You liked me yesterday. Oh, did I? Yeah. Dean. Kira. Are you glad that you watched Ishtar? Yes, and way more than most times on this podcast. <laughs> it's like somebody pulled back the curtain and I saw the wizard, you know? It's like, I, kn I knew I was going to like it. I expected to like it. I didn't expect to like it so much that I am now, like, genuinely outraged. <laughs> like, not, not even outraged in retrospect. Outraged, like, I'm back paying 40 years of outrage, even though I, I wasn't there. Like, furious, Good. furious. Good. I am untethered and my rage knows no bounds! Give Elaine May millions of dollars to make one last film. 
I'm just putting that out into the world. Somebody fucking do it. There must be some yeah, of all you rich bastards who have more money than you could ever spend. There must be one among you who's willing to bong Elaine May 20 million quid or something. And she could make one last picture. God damn it. What's the point of having oligarchs if none of them are willing to be patrons? Yeah, at least, you know, Queen Elizabeth the first <laughs> commissioned some fucking Shakespeare plays, you know? Yeah. I don't like to talk about money, okay? I'm a patron of the arts, and wrestling is an art, despite my mother's opinion, which is wrong. Next episode, it's my turn again, and we're shifting from blockbuster flops to whatever the exact opposite of a blockbuster flop is, because we're going into films made by, like, people who could barely pay their rent <laughs> and who had no formal film training and just sort of did shit. Uh, we're starting with the incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies, uh, directed by Ray Dennis Steckler, a man who appears in the film uh, in the lead role and who I would describe as looking like Nicolas Cage did not finish rendering in some sort of 3D imaging software. Good. It's a... A no-budget monster movie? <laughs> Question mark? That <laughs> billed itself as the first monster musical, which is, I'm going to let you know in advance so you're not let down. Complete horseshit. There are some, <laughs> there are some scenes of musical performances, but they're interspersed essentially at random. It's hard to describe. I have a feeling we will be shortening the title almost every time that we say it and just calling it <laughs> the incredibly strange creatures until next time i'm kira maloney i'm dean buckley the song was Bushtag love it were sight remix by holly bosom thanks holly and this was the sunday presents and a very happy birthday to my two favorite boys tex avery and johnny cash Those are humps. One man's hump.